Um, so we've been walking our way in the book of Joshua, uh, chapter uh, 1, 2, 3, and 4 up to this point. And as we have gone, we have seen pictures in the lives of these individual people of how courage and how faith have been growing and developing in them. And so we looked, and maybe in Joshua chapter 1, maybe you appreciated the story of Joshua and how he's encouraged over and over again to have a, a strong and courageous faith, bold and courageous, uh, for the task that was ahead of him as he filled new shoes and stepped into a new role. Or, or maybe it was Rahab and, and her willingness to step out and, and risk everything for God to show her faith in God. And maybe that was what encouraged you, inspired you. Maybe it was those priests who were willing to take that first step into the into a flooded river, trusting God to take care of them and to part the river like he said he would. Um, maybe it was the memory uh, and how memory create, creates courage that has helped you so far this in this series. But today we come to Joshua chapter 5. And if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open there with me. Uh, get your Bible app out and follow along. Because oftentimes when you think of Joshua and the encouraging things that are in this book, there's a lot of really cool things. Those first four chapters, we're going to get to the, the marching around Jericho and, and the defeating the, the people of Jericho and conquering the city. And, and there's lots of land to be conquered, a lot of great things. But then there's Joshua chapter 5. Like, what do you do with this chapter? And you're going to see what I mean here in a second. It's kind of a chapter that, that sits, sticks out from the others because there's not, it's kind of a different chapter, as you'll see in just a second. And what I'm hoping that we're going to take away from this today is is the idea that just God pauses. Last week we left them crossing the river. They're in the promised land. They are in the promised land where God has said, I'm going to take you and bring you for, for several decades now. And they're there. And you're thinking, okay, the next thing, let's go, let's go conquer a hill. Let's take a city. Let's do something. But then there's Joshua 5 where God stops and he does these unique things that I think as by the time we get to the end of this, I hope that you'll see has a very significant, probably more significant than what comes after it, uh, thing that happens as you read this chapter. And what I want you to take from me, or take from this with me today, is the idea of, of being in a right posture with God. That God cares a great deal about what your heart is, where your heart is, before God sends you to do things that God wants you to do. God cares a great deal about where your heart is, what your ambitions, what your motives are, where you're at with him. He cares about the inside, not just about the outer actions that you do. And so uh, here's what I want you to think about with me. Have you ever had a, been a kid or maybe been a kid, watched a kid, um, and they get caught doing something they shouldn't be doing? And they kind of have that look on their face like that guilty, conscience-stricken thing. I want you to show, I want to show you this video, and I, I want you to take a look at it with me because this is from America's Funniest Videos a few years ago. It just catches these kids in the act, okay? So take a look. Sugar, you know that, right? <laughs> Justin, what are you doing? Oh, my goodness. 
right, so you watch that, and I wanted to put a disclaimer before I get a nasty note. Kids, don't, teenagers, don't try any of that at home, okay? It's not funny when it happens at your house. It's funny when somebody else's house. So don't try that, okay, because I don't want to get in trouble. Um, but I share that with you because there's that look that a kid gets on their face when they're caught in the act, right? And, and all of a sudden, something enters that relationship. There's an, uh, an intimacy breaker. There's a closeness. There's a wall, something there that, like, oh, man, I better be careful in the next few things I do with mom and dad because something is not right in my relationship right now because they're probably on the verge of blowing their stack here, right? And so uh, there's something that creates a, a, a lack or a, a diminishing level of courage and closeness in a relationship when something like that happens. And so I want you to keep that in mind because here's my, my main point. Let me give you my idea what I, we're going to unpack here today. It's simply this, that outer courage flows from inner consecration. And that's a lot of words, and we're going to define that. But outer courage comes from inner consecration. And what does it mean to be consecrated? It means to be set aside. It means to be on purpose for something. And so oftentimes in life, we, we have to try to work ourselves into courage to do hard things. That's true spiritually. That's true in a lot of other things. But it certainly is true spiritually in our walk with God. And so sometimes we try to drum up courage from the outside. Uh, maybe we, we play Rocky music, right? The Eye of the Tiger to get ourselves pumped up. And think, okay, I can go do this hard thing because I've got this adrenaline burst from listening to this outward thing or watching something or listening to something. There's this outward thing, and those are fine. But sustainable courage always comes and flows out of a heart that is more and more consecrated to God. And I think if I could summarize what Joshua 5 is all about, it's about them finding the courage for the battles that are just a few days away by consecrating themselves, by reminding themselves we are God's people and we are going to obey God, we're going to trust God, we're going to give thanks for what God has done, and we're going to believe that God is going to do more of that in our life. And so there's this consecration that takes place in chapter 5 as they dedicate themselves more and more to God that I think is going to produce naturally this courage to do what God wants them to do and to be who God wants them to be. And so as we dive into this, let's just start with Joshua chapter 5. Again, dive into your Bible with me. Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. This is where we left the Israelites last time. They had just crossed into the promised land. It says this. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Now you might think that the next verse would be God's command to say, okay, you're here, let's go get them. Let's go get them. Let's go attack something. Let's go take something. And you would be wrong because if the Bible had sound effects, what you would find is that the Bible would have a large breaking noise, an er noise right there, because they stop. He stops there, and he doesn't go to the next thing that they think is on their radar, but note what God instructs them to do in verse 2. It says this, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. And so Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Okay, so some of you are thinking, I haven't been to church for a long time maybe, and this is what we're going to do today? So yes, we're going to do some of this today. We're not going to do this today. We're going to talk about this. That's, that's, sorry, the invitation today is for all who would like to be recircumcised that we will, um, kidding. we have trained people over here with flint knives. No, okay, so we're not going to do that, but that's an awkward thing, right? Both services, I'm just a teenager, a junior high kid at heart, sorry, I apologize for 
let's go back this way. Verse 4. All right, so the instructions are given. You're thinking, why in the world is this here, right? They are in the promised land. There are cities to be conquered. There's land to be taken. There are houses to build. There are farms to build. There's all this stuff to do. But why this? Why this? Well, he goes on to explain it to us, all right, in verse 4. Now, this is why he did so. He did so because all those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. So the Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died. And since they had not obeyed the Lord, since they had not obeyed the Lord, for the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. All right, are you feeling inspired yet? Okay, this is the refrigerator verses, not, not yet. But note this verse, I love verse 9 because he defines what's going on. This isn't just about circumcision, an outward thing. This is very much about the heart. Listen to what he says. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the place has been called Gilgal to this day. Now Gilgal City is a name that means rolls. Okay? And so we read that. We'll pause there a second and just think about what we have just read. Okay? So what's the big deal here? Why in the world is ink spilt on this? Well, if we go back to Old Testament people, if you were an Israelite person, the idea of circumcision began in Genesis chapter 17, which is just a few chapters after the most important thing that happened in your Hebrew culture if you were a Jewish person. The most important thing for a Jewish person was Genesis 15, where God shows up to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you and your offspring. And so there's this promise, this is covenant made with Abraham that through you and through your family, through your offspring, I'm going to do something that's going to bless the entire world. Now there's one problem. Abraham and Sarah were old and they had no kids at that point. And so they're thinking, well, how in the world is this going to happen? So this promise is made on faith and they believe God. So they follow God and they trust God. And then in Genesis chapter 17, this interesting thing is instituted where God comes and says, Abraham, I want you to circumcise. I want you to put a mark on the physical body of all of the male people of your camp. And it's kind of a weird thing. Why is that? Well, it has to do with those two things I just mentioned. One, it's, it's about a family growing. And so this whole reproduction thing that we're not going to go deep into here. But it's, it's this whole idea that every time a new child came into this Hebrew camp, God wanted them to remind themselves not just physically to chop off some skin, but more importantly, to remember the promise that was over their people. To remember that as a Hebrew, as an Israelite people, there's this promise that reigns over us. That God is going to bless the world through us. And so we need to be faithful to the covenant. And so they circumcised. Abraham would, would, would do this with his camp. And eventually when a son came to him, he circumcised him. And it was passed on from generation to generation um, up until the, the generation that left Egypt. Now, they, their families had all practiced this as a way of remembering the covenant, of remembering that God has blessed us and he has promised us and he's, he's going to do something through us as a people. But then this generation that came out of Egypt, for some reason, 
abruptly stopped. And the text doesn't tell us. You can look at it. You can give them the benefit of the doubt and say, you know what? We're traveling around in a desert. It's not the most convenient place to do circumcision. I don't know if there's ever a convenient time to do a circumcision. But it's not something that just, we're just not in our homes and it's just inconvenient. We're traveling all the time and it's hard. And maybe that's the case. But I don't think that's the case. I think they quit circumcising for the same reason that they quit trusting God and they didn't get to go into the promised land. It was a stubborn, rebellious, grumbling, unbelieving group of people. They didn't believe God. And so God brings them to the edge of the promised land and says, no, we can't do that. That's too hard. We're not going in there. It's too scary to us. So God says, fine, if you don't believe me, you can go wander in the desert until all of this generation dies off and I wonder if it wasn't a little bit of their stubbornness to say, you know what, God, if you're not taking us there, we're not going to do these things that you tell us to do. Because there's another thing we're going to see in a second that they also hadn't done since they left Egypt. And maybe it was this, this rebelliousness that lived within them. And so this new generation is now in the promised land, which is what God had been delivering them and promising them, uh, working towards for a long time. And they're there. But before they go take the city, God wants them to do the one thing that defines them as a people, um, at least physically, to put that mark on all of their, their men, to circumcise them. Now, let's go back to that phrase where he talked about, let me, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. What does that mean? I think reproach, what does reproach mean? It means to, to look in disapproval or to look with disappointment or to look with rebuke or to look with disgrace, to shame. If you catch your kid painting your, your vanity with white paint in your kitchen, there's a look of, of reproach on your face, right? What are you doing to my nice things, right? You, we've all had that, that feeling. But the reproach of Egypt, what's that mean? I think it can be one of two things. Maybe it's a reproach from without. Imagine if you were Egypt and you had watched all the plagues you had lived through all of the terrible things that happened to you, and those Israelites are finally gone. And the new Pharaoh, or Pharaoh, he continues to follow them, because where did they say they were going? We've got a, a new land. We're going back to Canaan, and that's going to be our, our new home. But what do your spies continue to come back and tell you? You know what those people are doing? Those people who made such great claims about their God and who said they were all this, you know what they're doing? They're wandering in a circle in the deserts. For 40 years, are they lost? What's wrong with them? And I'm sure Egypt mocked them, made fun of them, looked down with reproach because you people said such great things about your God and look where you're at. And so maybe that reproach was they felt the sting of people who we should have been there, but in actuality we're just spinning our wheels in the desert waiting for a generation to die off. And so maybe that came from without. Or maybe that reproach was the reproach of Egypt that came from within. Because they came out of Egypt with, a, with an attitude, with an attitude towards God. And maybe it was the ugliness of their unbelief that God was saying, you know what, in this act today of you recircumcising yourself as a nation, starting this practice again, doing this thing I told you to do, maybe it was getting rid of their, you know what, no longer are we going to be a generation who doesn't believe God and doesn't obey God. We're going to be a generation that does what God tells us to do. So maybe that's where the reproach has gone because God would have looked at reproach like, why would you not believe me when I've done everything for you in that previous generation? And so whatever the case, whether from without or with, from within, it's gone. And God was doing something to build them up in that moment through their obedience to this weird command, okay? Now this is an Old Testament thing. This is not something I'm gonna get the end of this and say, now go and do likewise. I'm not gonna do that. Uh, but this is certainly a, a thing in the Old Testament that God 
um, called them to do, and not just a physical thing, but a heart thing, to show you that you really believe me by following and, and doing what I tell you to do, all right? And so that's the first paragraph, a weird paragraph, okay? But let's go to the next one. The next paragraph begins in verse 10, and, and what you find is that um, another thing happens that hasn't happened in a long time. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while they camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, while they're healing up, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. Now, what was the Passover? To the Hebrew people, the Passover was that meal that God instituted. While circumcision had been around for hundreds of years, Passover had been a relatively new thing, and God made them on the last night they were in Egypt, get in their homes together as families, uh, uh, sacrifice a lamb, put the blood on the door, have these certain things that you're to eat, eat with your cloak, with your cloak tucked in as if you're ready to go, do all these things as a, as a last meal to remember the night that you, last night you spent in Egypt, and the next day I set you free. And so it was a memorial meal to remind them of everything God had done, everything God had done to prepare them and to lead them and to get them to where they were. And so Passover was observed for the first time in 40 some odd years. And so the day after the Passover, the text goes on to say, the day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. Now just pause on that before we read the next verse because something happens next. But I just want you to think about, I don't know what meal you look forward to. Thanksgiving is a month away. And maybe you're looking forward to somebody's turkey, somebody's, I don't know. You got something in your mind that you get excited about. I'm going there and we're going to eat that. But imagine having to wait 40 years for that. Imagine the, the delight, the joy of being able to say, hey, no longer are we eating food from the desert. Now we're going to eat the best of the land. And so they ate fried grain, roasted grain, unleavened bread that would have come from the land. And then something cool happens. Verse 12, the manna stopped. The manna that God had given them every day for 40 years to take care of them in the desert, to feed them. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. And there was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year, they ate the produce of Canaan. One interesting thing I read this week that talked about, a few weeks ago we talked about why did God lead the people to cross the river at flood stage? Why was that done at that time? Well, one of the key things you need to know is that what happened, what's going on in the promised land at flood stage? Everything's ready to be harvested. It's harvest time when flood stage happens. And so one of the reasons God led them through a hard thing was because there was fruit ready to be eaten on the other side of that river. And so a hard thing, a scary thing, but there was a purpose to it. He could have brought them earlier, hey, wait six months and you can have some grain. No, he led them, hey, it's ready. Come try this. Let me show you how good this is going to be for you. And so a cool thing happens is they follow God. They observe uh, the Passover. They eat food from the land. Um, and then finally, while they're all indulging and eating and healing, something personal happens with Joshua in verse 13. It says this, now when Joshua was near Jericho, so what's he doing? Jericho is the next big city. It's the first target that they're going to have to deal with as they begin to take over the land. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him. So Joshua apparently is, is off by himself. He's left the crowd alone. A lot of leaders will do that. Or maybe you just get away before some big thing in your life. And you kind of just say, okay, let me breathe here. Let me think about this. Let me scout out what we're doing. Remind myself what we're supposed to be doing here. So he looks up and sees a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. That would have been intimidating, right? You're out there in the, in the desert or in the, in the land by yourself, and someone greets you with a sword in hand. And, and Joshua went up to him and asked the question that you need to know when you meet someone with a sword in their hand, 
are you for us or are you for them, our, our enemies? Who, who are you, whose side are you on? Because that's important because you need to know, do I need to draw my sword or do I need to uh, extend my hands to, to welcome you? And I love his answer because I think this answer is so, so important for us. Neither, he replied. Neither. That's an interesting thing. Well, isn't he for the Hebrew people? Yeah, kind of, maybe. But is he for the Canaanite people? Yeah, maybe, kind of. We'll see that in a second. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, he worships him, what message does my Lord have for his servants? And verse 15 finishes, the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place that you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Three weird paragraphs. And you think, why do those matter? Why do those add anything to the story? I think they add a lot to the story. Because I think it's a reminder, again, that God cares a great deal about where the heart of his people is. Before he goes and says, go do, he says, whoa, pause and remind yourself of who you are and who I'm calling you to be as a people. And so I, as I think about that and I look at that, I just want to draw some conclusions about where courage can come from in our life based upon those three little paragraphs and I hope that I will help us kind of process this. If I want to be a more courageous follower of Jesus, I think the first thing I'm going to find is that courage comes from doing right. That courage comes from doing right. You see, God, again, if you've ever been in a relationship with someone and there was tension, there was something that someone had done something wrong to the other. And apart, before reconciliation happens or forgiveness happens or we move past it, there's this tension, right? And there's not confidence as much in that relationship because that tension, whatever that is, is there. And for the Hebrew people, when God comes to them and says, look, I told you this back when I instituted my covenant. I want you to circumcise your, your young men when they're born, eight days old. I want you to circumcise them. Um, and they had stopped for whatever reason. And the whole point of doing that really was about learning to obey God in the basic things, the little things, as a people. It's just simply a call to do that. And they could have gone into battle um, and, and made whatever happened, happened. But imagine knowing, being able to read your Old Testament, the, the few books and the few stories that they had at that point, and able to say, you know what, God told us to do this, and we haven't done this. And so why, why should we, there's just a confidence gap, right? And anytime that God calls you to, to obey him or to do something or have courage, courageous trust in him, if there's some glaring thing for them, circumcising our, our young men, our, our men, um, and they hadn't done it, there was a confidence issue there. And so as they obeyed, it didn't necessarily mean, hey, we're perfect and we've got our act all together and we don't ever sin. It's not what this is about. It's about saying, you know what, God said it, I did it. And there's a confidence that comes from that, right? When you obey God in things he tells you to do, there's just a confidence of saying, you know what, I can trust God. And again, I'm not earning it. It's all about his grace. But, but he calls us to be obedient followers. And when I follow him and I do right, there's a confidence that just begins to grow inside of me, inside of you. And out of that confidence comes a courage. Think of the disciples of Jesus. Um, at the end of Jesus' life on this earth, all of them scatter, some of them deny him. They end up in a mess, right? They're all distant, removed, ashamed, all those negative things. And there's probably not, when you read the stories of when Peter and Jesus are reunited, I think it's in John chapter 20 and 21, when those two are united, there's an awkwardness 
Peter is not confident in his relationship with Jesus, even though he's been his best friend almost for three years. There's this tension because Peter has blown it. But Jesus, through his grace, he reinstates him, he restores him, he forgives him, and encourages him to get up and do right. And Peter, moving forward, has this attitude about him that he's willing to risk it all. It's because grace and his obedience are combining to to make a man who has great confidence and great courage to risk everything for God, for Christ, because of that relationship being right, because he did right. And so I just want you to think about that in your life. Does obedience matter? The more obedient that you learn to grow as you follow Jesus, does that help you to be more confident follow? Sure it does, because we all deal with guilt and shame and when we don't. And so when I can confidently learn by following Christ and with his help that, man, I am, I'm growing, I'm obeying, I'm reading from Scripture, I'm doing what it tells me to do. There's just a confidence, not an arrogance like the Pharisees had, says, look at me, but just a simple confidence that says, hey, I'm reading, I'm learning, I'm doing, and God is growing. God grows in that. That's what it means to be attached to the vine, I think, in, in John 15. There's a dependence as, as we learn and we obey and as he feeds into that in our life. And so confidence, courage comes from doing right. Number two, courage comes from being full of gratefulness for God's goodness. That courage comes from being full of gratefulness for God's courage. That's the whole Passover paragraph. Why stop? Why have this meal? I think it's always important to remember how I got here. Why am I here? I'm not here by my might. I'm not here by my strength, my smarts, or our abilities. I am here only because of the grace and the power of God at work in my life. And when that begins to fill your heart, when you're focused on that and you're meditating on that, all of a sudden there's a gratefulness begins to fill you because of God's goodness in your life. Now, what's the opposite of that? Too often times we go around living life and we're full of ungratefulness and ingratitude and complaining um, because we've forgotten God's goodness. Again, as they observed the Passover, as they ate from the goodness of the land, how great that must have been. And God, I think, wanted them to eat before they went. He could have given them more manna, but he said, I want you to pause. I want you to eat this meal. Enjoy the, the grain of the land. Enjoy the fruit of the land. Enjoy this. Because this is why I brought you here. And I want you to remember how good I have been to you because you're going to need that reminder in some hard days to come. And so courage comes from doing right. It comes from being full of gratefulness for God's goodness. And number three, I think courage comes from choosing complete surrender. That courage comes from choosing complete surrender in our life. And when we choose to surrender to God, when we choose like Joshua does in the desert, as he falls down before the commander of the Lord's armies, there's a surrender. There's no more defenseless posture than to fall down on your face before someone, someone especially with someone with a sword, right? It's, it's a matter of, I give up. I trust you. I submit to you. Why would he do that? Because he recognizes that God is in his presence. The whole picture, there's these little scenes that every once in a while show up in the Old Testament of, that a lot of people think, of, well, that's, that's Jesus that shows up there. He's the commander. He's the Lord's servant. And, and as you trace that little theme to the Old Testament, it's a fun journey to watch where maybe the times where Jesus in the pre-incarnate state shows up as God's servant. So Jesus shows up there. God's, God's, the angel of the Lord's army shows up there. And worship is given. Oftentimes angels will deflect worship because they're not supposed to be worshiping angels. They worship God. But yet this being receives the worship and he gives, speaks as one who has authority over Joshua's life. 
And so in surrender, Joshua learned some really good things that he needs to know. How comforting it must have been as you think of where the camp was at in Gilgal to Jericho. It's just a few miles away. But what stands between Israel and Jericho? The Lord's army is there. God is there to fight for his people. God is there to help Joshua. But let's go back to that little statement we said earlier. When he asked the angel, whose side are you on? And the angel says, neither. What does that mean? I think that's a very insightful statement he makes because I think sometimes we can assume just because the Hebrews sometimes got in trouble for this, just because we're Israel, God is obligated to be on our side and to bless us because we're Israel. We're his people, right? But you read God's perspective and take on that. God was not, they hadn't earned that. They didn't owe them anything. He said, I will bless you if you'll be my people. I will bless you. I will do these great things if, 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 if. There's all these little if things that keep showing up all over the Old Testament. And so oftentimes, whose side is God's God on? God is on the side of those who are for him. And so what we've already read in Joshua, is God for his people? Yeah, he's for the Hebrew people, Israelite people, when they're for him. What about the Canaanites? They're about to have some terrible things happen their way, but is God against them? No. What about Rahab? She was the Jericho woman. Remember that she was a, not a Hebrew person, but was God for Rahab? Yeah, because Rahab was for God. And so anybody, so oftentimes we put labels on things, well, God is for us or God is for me because we live here, we look like this, we live in this place or whatever. That doesn't matter to God. God is looking for people who are for him. And if you are for him, he's all for you. All right, I love this verse from 2 Chronicles chapter 16. I believe it says this. Second Second Chronicles 16 for me? Oh, it's there. Oh, very good. Good grief. All right. All right. I hate it when that happens. For the eyes of the Lord, all right, range throughout the earth to strengthen who? Who is God looking to strengthen? Those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And that's not about nationality. That's not about gender. That's not about uh, income status. He's looking for people who are fully committed to him. I think that's a beautiful promise. So is God for Rahab, even though she's not a Hebrew person? You bet he is. And he's going to save her and he's going to use her life. Is God for his Hebrew people? You bet he is. But he wants them to know that this isn't about just you and, and you just raking in the blessings and, and you're not accountable. It's about them being completely surrendered to him. And so I just want to be encouraging to you today. As you think about where's courage going to grow in your life? Is there a right thing? that you're holding off from doing, that you know you should be doing. And that's probably holding you back. And, and in the back of your mind, Satan plays on that, doesn't he? If you're not obeying it, Satan will play that against you. It's like, hey, you, you want to do these great things for God, but you're not even doing this. And so work on that. Where's that next right thing that God is calling you to be doing? Where's that place that you should be grateful for, allowing that to fill your heart with his goodness, so that you're living each day just glad, even though hard things may come, but God has been so good to me. It's that whole memory sermon from last week. And where's the place where you're holding out on surrendering to God? And you lack confidence because you're not surrendering to him. It's a nice, it's a kind of a dreary day. So maybe if you get bored today, if you're scrolling through channels, you might come across the old movie Toy Story or 15 of its other descendants that came after it. Um, but you remember in the movie Toy Story, there's a little kid who's got his toy box. And how did Andy mark his toys? Remember, 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 what did he do? He marked the bottom of their shoe, right? Is that what you think? All right, so he took his little marker and he wrote in little kid's letters, Andy, on the bottom of Woody and Buzz and other, other, other 
special toys. He wrote that on the end of that. And if you follow that story, oftentimes when they're lost or they're confused or they don't think they matter, what do they go back to? It comes back to that name on the bottom of their foot. Well, you may not have Andy at the bottom of your shoe. That's awkward if you do. Um, but think about what's this story trying to tell his people before they go into battle. He's trying to tell them, you are mine. You are mine by choice from a long time ago. You are part of a big story I'm accomplishing in the world. You are mine recently by redemption, by what I have done in freeing you and bringing you to the land. You are mine as you surrender to me and I empower you and I work in you and I do good things in your life through you. And so God is using this chapter, a unique chapter that has some unique things in it. He's using it to again remind them who they are. And as he does so, I think what God is doing is he's beginning to clear the clutter out of their minds, clearing the clutter of disobedience and clearing the clutter of ungratefulness and clearing the clutter of selfish ambition. And so what is the right thing that God is calling you to do? What is the good thing that God is wanting you to celebrate? And what is the next thing that God is leading you to surrender to him?